The primary election is right around the corner. Early voting starts February 20th, and the Railroad Commission race is heating up. We talked to one of those candidates on this episode of The Career Truth. In 1901, at Spindletop Hill near Beaumont, the future of Texas changed dramatically as, like a fountain of fortune, thousands of barrels of oil burst from the earth towards the sky. Soon, Detroit would be cranking out Model Ts by the millions, and America was on the move, thanks to the black gold being produced in Texas. Now, more than a century later, the vehicles are different, but nothing else has truly changed. Sure, there may be many other alternative energy sources like wind and solar and electric. But let's be honest, America depends on oil and entrepreneurs, and if the USA is truly gonna be independent, it has to know the crude truth. This episode is brought to you by LFS Chemistry, committed to being good stewards of the environment and providing the tools so you can be too. NAPE Expo, where deals happen. Air Compressor Solutions, when everything is on the line, Air Compressor Solutions is the dependable choice to keep commercial business powered up. Sandstone Group, Exec Crew, elevate your network, elevate your knowledge. Oil and Gas Workers Association, Pecos Country Operating, fueling our future. Well, hello again, and uh, just thank you as always for tuning in, listening, or watching to another episode of The Crude Truth. Um, as you know, it is election season. It is 2024, uh, based on my last week's uh, episode. Uh, we're getting there. Right now, we got primaries, which are just as important as November, and early voting for primaries start February 20th here in the great state of Texas. Uh, today, I've got again with me my great co-host, Christy Kearns. Christy, how are you? I'm doing amazing. How are you? Oh, my gosh. Doing really, really well. Glad to see you here again today on this wonderful morning, whatever day it is of the week. It's Friday. It's Friday. It's Friday. Okay. It is Friday? It is Friday. It's Friday. I'm on track of the days as well. <laughs> oh, my God. It has been a whirlwind. But our guest today is someone that is running for railroad commissioner looking to unseat the incumbent. He is a Democrat hailing from Houston, Texas. Bill Birch. Bill, how are you? I'm great. Actually, I'm not from Houston, Texas. Oh. I actually live in Polk County, so a Lake Livingston area, um, in, uh, right between Livingston and Onalaska, just off of US 190. So I'm actually one of the very first statewide candidates to ever run out of Polk County. Well, that's awesome. I, don't ask me why I was thinking Houston, and uh, but okay. That's awesome. That's exciting to know. Yeah, it's it's been, it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. Well, I won't. We won't talk about uh, where you grew up, uh, but uh, let's talk about being in Texas because you're from PA, correct? That is correct. How long have you been in the great state of Texas? I came down here for my very first trip right when I graduated university, uh, year of two thousand, and uh, I worked for Slumberjay at the time down in Richmond. Uh, yeah. just on the edges zone before Sugarland became the massive complex that it is today. Yeah. Uh, and then I basically spent the vast majority of my career rotating between international assignments and back and forth between Houston. So I've been to 60 plus countries in my oil field experiences and uh, home base has been Houston basically since, officially since 2008. I uh, finally really truly called Houston home. And uh, and then I, I lived in Houston at the time. Okay. That's probably where that comes from. Uh, and then in 2017, I decided to uh, move full-time up to Lake Livingston, and uh, I've been a member in Polk County since. Oh, my gosh. I love it. Kind of a little quieter up there. Love it. Yeah, right. Lake Life is uh, Lake, Lake Life. There's nothing wrong with East Texas <laughs> living Lake Life. I'll tell you that much. 610 traffic in uh, Beltway 8 and Grand Parkway at times. You can say thank you. I don't have to deal with that anymore. Oh, my gosh. Well, let's talk about your background in Slumbergy. I mean, uh, obviously, traveling the world. Um, you know, what was that like and, and how, how's that, you know, how was that time? 
Well, it was a whirlwind experience. So when I first graduated university, five weeks later, I landed in Al-Kabar, Saudi Arabia. I spent uh, the next two and a half years working in the Middle East between uh, living in Oman and working in Pakistan and going around to Kuwait, UAE, Dubai, um, spent time in Saudi, of course. And uh, I'd say after 9-11, I decided that uh, the environment and the challenges of travel and everything else, it was time to take a change of pace. Okay. So I joined Halliburton and I went to work as part of their global flying squad of six guys. We did everything in the, all the fleet services. We ran directional drilling tools to LWD and MWD services. We did new contract startup service quality issues and areas where districts didn't have engineers that could run tools and jobs. Yeah. And I was all over the world, 25 plus countries at that time. Um, I was racking up about a quarter million frequent flyer miles a year. And uh, I mean, I bounced everywhere. And uh, I didn't think that was crazy enough. So when I went to LSU in 07 to get my master's, I then joined <laughs> Wild Well Control, which then went into a well firefighting side of things. And then, well, let's just say I never was home. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Live out of a blowout bag and uh, you have the joys of uh, truly traveling and experiencing the world at a totally different level as an oil well firefighter. Holy cow, I didn't know you did uh, the Reddit Air thing. I did. I did for uh, six and a half years with Wild Well Control, and then I went on my own uh, in 2013 as a uh, consultant, and I worked for uh, initially for Chevron Deepwater, okay. and I was their in-house consultant. Okay. And also I uh, did some work for uh, Pemex, where I put out the very first uh, shallow water flow in 10,000 feet of water ever been killed in the industry. Whoa. And uh, after that, I went to uh, go work for the North Sea Division of Chevron, and I had worked on one of the very first HPHD wells that had been drilled since uh, the Ocean Odyssey incident in 1991. Whoa, the North Sea is no joke. It's cold. Those are some of the worst waters that there are in, in the world. Yes, sir. We, and in fact, that winter, we actually had some of the worst rogue waves that they had seen in probably 20 years. And we were actually shut down for wind on weather for a good week and a half. Um, because of the actual weather, it was horrendous. We actually had to disconnect from the seafloor and actually had to float. It was that rough. So, no way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it's it's legit. The North Sea conditions yeah. are legit. I love watching those videos. I'm, I wouldn't want to be on there, but, yes, I love watching Yeah, I, wait, I will say, though, when you do see the uh, subsea riser joint literally stroke, uh, it's the full eight meter down and up and down and up, and you go like, yeah, okay, this we're really bouncing. Eight like, meters, that, that's 24, 24 feet. 24 feet. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's when you know when you're heaving that much, it's like, wow, oof. So uh, after that, you know, I um, I kind of, uh, I worked on some alternative energy projects. I got my first U.S. patent approved as a uh, carbon-free energy technology that uh, generates hydrogen. And then uh, ended up in Nigeria, of all places, on a uh, another blog in the Delta. And uh, <laughs> while I did that, I was also uh, called uh, the Antima Cattle Company Ranch out in West Texas, where uh, I did the very first two zombie wells that uh, have been featured and talked about quite a bit in Texas Monthly and others. So... That was uh, what started this whole progress to actually go run for office was, uh, I was just dealing with the uh, Antima Cattle Company. Wow. Okay. That's such a great story. Oh, and I, you know, I also was uh, one of the people that BP called the morning the Deepwater Horizon blew out. Did you? I did. I spent 140 days working at BP's office. I was wow. part of the uh, flow rate calculation team. I was part of the top kill team. Uh, I was part of the relief well team on both the relief well executions and design and was also part of the subsea capping uh, design team and... Believe it or not, part of the static kill, which ended the worst oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico's history. So, yeah, you know, I've uh, in 23 years of business, my career has had some very interesting twists and turns, and I've had the pleasure of truly experiencing some things in the industry that uh, are really unique. So, it's been a pleasure. That's amazing. The stories that led you up to obviously running is yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more why you decided to run. So, 
you know, the hardest thing about running for office was that I'm not a politician. I mean, I'm an engineer by heart. You know, it's uh, I love working in the field. It's uh, like I've always said, it's, I, I love my car hearts more. I love my Canales. Yeah. Um, oh, everybody always says, wow, you can actually dress up. Like, you can actually pull off a suit and tie. And I'm like, well, I, I, my, mom, my mom's happy, right? Yes. And as long as I don't swear too much, my mom's also very happy. Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing I found was that I was very disappointed. Over the years, I've had a few run-ins with the Rural Commission. Uh, I did one job in East Texas. Um, unfortunately, I'm still under a confidentiality agreement. I can't disclose a lot of information, but it was a 10 million barrel underground blowout that occurred in Panola County, and the operator spent $77 million to plug one well. And this was due to the first time I'd ever seen the scenario of saltwater disposal occurring in Panola County from the Haynesville production. And the over-injection and unregulated injection of the saltwater had caused this underground blowout. Okay. Well, the problem was that it had doubled the pore pressure from when the operator originally drilled the well. So in 1993, when the operator drilled the well, they drilled it with no no mud weight. It was a regular well, there was no issues. Well, by the time we got onto it in 2010 through 2011, it took 18 months to kill this well, and the pore pressure had more than doubled, and it was flowing from the zone where it was being injected into up to the casing shoe and then back out again. And it had created a mud weight that was an unkillable scenario, an unkillable well. Whoa. Now, the original design engineers never would have allowed for this scenario had they known that this zone was going to be used for saltwater injection. But what the Railroad Commission did at the time, which really shocked me and what kind of driven this whole scenario, is that the Railroad Commission blamed the operator for failure to have isolation on a well that was drilled 20 years prior to the start of water injection. Well, there's no competent engineer that would have said I wouldn't have designed and isolated the casing had that been the scenario, had I known. So that was really quite remarkable at the time to see that this scenario developed. Well, how did we solve the problem? Well, we had to bleed off 450,000 barrels of produced water and transport it off far enough away to not allow the pore pressure to recharge. Well, you know, th these are not the kind of solutions that are going to be cheap in the industry to try to fix this subnormal pore pressure, these overpressurized zones that are occurring. So fast forward to 2021, well, you know, the Permian's development with the unconventional resources, and especially the Delaware in particular, has exploded since, well, 2008 we started drilling, but really the 2013-14 cycle when the Permian development really exploded with the Delaware. Well, for every oil barrel oil we get out of the ground in the Delaware, we get somewhere between three, five barrels of water with it. So the problem is we've drilled more wells, and we produce more oil, and we're producing like 5.9 million barrels a day of oil out of the Permian. Yeah. The problem with the vast majority of the Delaware production is that it's extraordinarily heavy in water. So all that water has to be redisposed of. Well, the problem with the disposal side is that we have filled up all the conventional resources that we used to use for disposal. So we've had to drill more saltwater disposal wells. Well, the problem was if you drill them, so if you know anything about the Permian, the, the middle section of the Permian where we produce all of this oil from in the Delaware or even in the Midland Basin is a non, it has no porosity, no permeability. So you can't inject water back into it. It's like trying to, you can get the water out of the concrete, but you can't put the water back into the concrete, right? So we have to either go below it. So it takes a lot more time. It's a lot heavier pressure and it's a lot more expensive to try to inject the water deeper or we eject it shallower. But the problem with the shallower is that that's where we drilled all our original wells pre-1990, you know, 2000. These are all the historical wells in the San Andreas and the Queen Sands and all these other units. 
Well, the problem with that is that none of those wells drilled in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s were constructed worth a damn, where we have poor isolation of cement from the original construction, or we've got failed pet cement, or we've got pathways that are flowing. So as we've increased the pore pressure from all of the saltwater disposal shallow, it's found all its ways to get up and now exit out sideways. Right. So what we're finding is that this area in Crane County, Ward County, Reeves County, 500,000 plus acres is probably a low end estimate, maybe closer to a million, million and a half acres is a higher end estimate. Okay. To put this in perspective, what's a half a million acres? The entire city of Houston is 426,000 acres. This is bigger than the city of Houston. Yeah. It's already blowing out underground and is already flowing into the groundwater. We have proven examples now in Crane County showing that we have groundwater contamination from our legacy wells that weren't plugged and adequately isolated from the saltwater disposal problem. So when I went to the Antina Cattle Company Ranch in June of 2000 and I saw what was happening, I went to the Rare Commission and I said to them, I said, you have to get ahead of this narrative. This is going to be a disaster scenario for everybody in oil and gas if we don't find a way to deal with the groundwater contamination these zombie wells that are going to be a major phenomenon, cost basis and issue and risk because there's thousands of them. I mean, this isn't just a short amount of plug wells that exist in West Texas. On this ranch alone in Antina Ranch, there is 400 plus wells on the ranch. And out of the 102 excavated so far in the last two years, 91 of them are currently flowing. So if that rate of failure, talking about 85, 90% of the wells that we're excavating are currently flowing at surface, how, how, how big of a problem is this? So I've been trying to get to the Rare Commission saying, like, look, you need to understand where this water is coming from. What are the real zones of flow? There's a lot of discussion amongst the geophysics and geoscience communities about water potential causation, but nobody really knows. There hasn't been any real diagnostic work done. Y'all need to be the one that takes charge and lead on this. And they're like, thanks for coming to Austin. Have some good barbecue while you're in town. Okay. And I said, you know, <clears throat> go to hell. If you're not going to take this problem seriously from somebody who's been around the world, has a bit of technical credibility, and un and understands the scope of this problem, I, I, don't, I don't know what else to tell you. So two years later, fast forward now, the problem is now literally we had the Crane County geyser on FM 329 that blew out January 1st. Yes. And now we've got the Crane County well that, that uh, fractured its way through the groundwater to surface on its own and flowed through at least two, two different freshwater aquifers. And cost, and the Railroad Commission just acknowledged it's finally been plugged, but it cost us $2.5 million of taxpayer money to manage one ghost well that doesn't exist in the records. How many more, how much more of this whack-a-mole approach are they going to continue to take exactly. before we deal with the underlying cancer? I, I keep saying to folks, we're, we're, treating, we're treating the symptoms of the cancer without dealing with the actual what, cancer. What, what is that cancer, Bill, exactly? So the cancer is, unfortunately, really is the saltwater disposal issue. Now, the saltwater disposal issue is something that is inherent to our production in the zone. So we have to acknowledge that this is not about killing the Permian, shutting in the Permian. This is not about pulling in Oklahoma and shutting in 75% of the production in eastern Oklahoma like they did in 2014, right? Yeah. That's catastrophic for everybody in the business. But we also know that not treating this problem right. is catastrophic because three of the five largest earthquakes that have ever occurred in the state of Texas's history there's only been five earthquakes that have occurred in the state over a 5.0 magnitude, and three of them have occurred in the last 18 months. Now, you tell me if that's not enough of a red warning flag for you to say that, you know, don't get in the water, it's a high riptide. Like, this is as bad as it gets. Homeowners in Midland are seeing their property insurance rates skyrocket. 
because of the fact that they can't get earthquake coverage now. I've heard one person get quoted at $17,000 for their homeowner's renewal because of the earthquake policy because the actuarial science says this problem is going to get worse before it gets better. So it's an issue that is literally, and I've been on campaign stops between Austin to El Paso, all the way from Abilene to uh, Alpine, and literally everybody has asked me, what are you going to do about the earthquakes? They're being felt across the entire region. There's nothing there's nothing short about the magnitude of a 5.0. People are waking up and saying, like, my house is shaking, the, the chandelier swinging. Well, so, you know, Bill, what do you say to the reports? You know, I think is it UT or SMU, um, you know, has come out with reports saying that those earthquakes are not you know, coming from the saltwater disposal or the injection wells. You know, they've, they've, they've done studies there. At those, you know, what do you say to those? So that that's actually not correct. Okay. So I would challenge you on that information and, and pull that up for a factual purpose because USMU, for a fact, did publish the fact that the earthquakes are directly causation to and okay. the USGS. And, and USGS has also confirmed undeniable that they're anthropologically driven. They're man-made driven. So there's nothing else that is occurring in the Permian that's causing the massive amount. Now, whether it's lubrication of the ancient faults, whether it's causing some sort of motion, or whether there's some other phenomena, look, I'm not a geoscientist. Right. And to take claim on ownership of that one. And there'll be lots of people getting PhDs over the next 25, 30 years that I'll lead them to those, those opportunities to definitively land that out in the science. But the reality of where we are at today is that the saltwater disposal issue is going to be the number one issue for the Permian for the Delaware Basin issues. Good. And we have to have a reasonable solution or this is going to be a significant risk to long-term groundwater, which will cost us more money at the end of the day. Now, you mentioned the $2.5 million that it cost to, to plug that well, um, and that was taxpayer. Was that like actual taxpayer money, or was that money out of the Railroad Commission coffer? Well, so that's a good question. So the Railroad Commission doesn't follow. Well, so let's, let, let me get on another <laughs> issue. I love the Railroad Commission, right? So they don't, somehow they have an exemption from the National Incident Management System, right? So NIMS. So the state of Texas has to be compliant with what's called NEMS, National Incident Management System. And in that system, you're supposed to have, and every incident management is supposed to have a operational command, then you have a logistics and a finance and a scheduling system, right? And, and in that financial reporting, you have transparency. Well, the Rare Commission, first, of all, first and foremost, doesn't follow the actual Texas required federally compliant standard, and nobody knows why. So I called the Office of Emergency Management. I said, can you please explain to me what's happening and you have transparency, and they don't even have we don't even have the job logged the the job logged in our system, huh? So I said, well, why is that? I said, is the Texas Railroad Commission exempt? Like, no. So why isn't this responded? Uh, we don't know. So we don't have any transparency. We don't know how the money was spent. We don't know where it came from. We don't know what they actually spent it on. So there's a lot of questions about the Texas Railroad Commission's transparency, should we say, okay. on where did that two and a half million really get spent? Was it really all in trucking and hauling fees or was it really all in day rates or what What really happened? So, again, we don't know what happened. We don't know the timeline. They haven't disclosed any of the log information, how they determined what they did, who was responding on the job. We have no idea. So this is the Texas Railroad Commission working for who? The people of Texas? I, I would challenge the fact that the Texas Railroad Commission is intentionally hiding this information to either try to cover their ass legitimately to figure out how big of a problem this really is or... There is true corruption occurring at the Texas Road Commission. Unfortunately, our uh, our Attorney General doesn't seem very interested in corruption, so I think we're going to have to wait to see an OAG someday that might actually <laughs> investigate. But in the meantime, you know, the reality of it is is that this is just another example of the Texas Road Commission's failure to be transparent and work for the people of Texas. Okay. Well, let me ask you this. Um, you're running underneath the Democrat ticket. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not saying you are, and that's you know your full beliefs, but that's what you're running under. Uh, President Biden has just, you know, as you know, gone ahead and limited the amount of liquid natural gas that we can export here in America, which hurts Texans and their jobs. If you were in that role right now, you know, what would you say to President Biden about this issue? So that's a great one. So first and foremost, this is another example of classic misinformation. President Biden didn't say about limiting the current existing terminals. It was about pausing construction on new facilities and new managed and new new constructive facilities. Okay. So we already have a plethora of export facilities out of Brownsville, out of Corpus, and out of uh, the Louisiana Main Pass area, right? So we already have sufficient resources in the Gulf Coast region to be able to manage our LNG supply side. Okay. So pausing more LNG terminal construction in Texas wasn't a bad thing. And I would challenge again that this is the this is the false narratives of people not actually doing the reading of what actually was written. It doesn't say that we're not exporting more LNG. We're pausing on new construction of LNG. Okay. Now, it, will there come a day where we will need to export more LNG probably in the future? Because, look, LNG is one of the most critical resources. There's still 800 million people around the world who don't have access to even electricity. Right. We are supplying our strategic military partnerships in Taiwan. We are exporting to Thailand. Thailand is now one of our larger buyers in Asia. Right. Yep. I used to drill the wells that were originally there with Unical and Chevron, and the Gulf of Thailand is at its, at its end of life now. It's 25 years later, and it's at end of life. The Thailand economy now is being supported by U.S. Gulf Coast LNG. Right. We're shipping it to Taiwan. We're going to be shipping more to Japan. We're shipping more to Korea. And then the the European corridor, we're selling a lot more LNG now to the European side. We are. Which is where you look at the actual cargo loads, the vast majority of our cargo loads aren't going through the Panama Canal. They're actually going to Europe. Right. And, and so with that being said, it's like, you know, here, here in Texas, we're the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, mm-hmm. right? So why 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 would we you know shut down this construction again? That's jobs that are being you know. And so we're not shutting down. So again, that we're not shutting down the jobs for the facilities that are in construction. Okay. We're pausing building new more facilities. Gotcha. There's a big difference between saying you're eliminating jobs so and running a Republican narrative. Let me challenge you. Okay. okay. You're refeeding the Republican narrative that the White House is against the oil and gas industry. The White House is not against the oil and gas industry. We are against certain specific elements of the climate science of the oil of the oil and gas industry denial of climate. We are against the issues of not tackling the methane. In fact, the Texas Rural Commission just told Ken Paxton to go ahead and sue the EPA on Tuesday okay. to defend against the COP28 requirements for methane emissions of the Permian. Oh, that, the, the COP28 thing was nothing more than just... Uh, Agreed. Yeah. But, but the reality of being able to use some technology to monitor and manage and put some sort of emission standards, where even BP and Occidental Petroleum are in agreement. So what I what I don't understand here is, again, we have to be very careful in the conversation of what the White House says or the Californians say or New Yorkers say or East Coast says versus Texas, right? Right. And as a Texas Rural Commissioner, this is about representing Texas yes. and our need for our energy economy, which drives 8% of our GDP, which is 2.2 million jobs, and it's a significant input to the higher educational funds, right? The, a lot of these narratives are Fox News and CNN Fed equally wrong, okay? They both have their bias. This it needs to be clear about what it is in Texas. And for us in Texas, right, the oil and gas industry is going to be a critical commodity for our long-term energy needs, our strategic military partnerships, and also our need to supply our own economy with uh, with resources to maintain our grid expansion. I, I tell folks on the campaign trail all this. Yeah. First and foremost, let's look at the four sectors of where we use energy, right? Yeah. 
Residential, commercial, those are mostly electrification. Yeah. Mostly. Right. Okay. You got propane. You maybe have natural gas stove, <laughs> yes. right? Okay. And some of that's, look, look, let's be realistic. Some of that's ridiculous. Okay. But, you know, you ain't going to get rid of my barbecue grill anytime soon. So, but, you know, the Railroad Commission actually does own the, actually is the regulator for all those propane bottles. Yes. Right. So that's something people don't realize the impact of like, well, the Railroad Commission doesn't matter to me. Well, actually it does because it actually even manages the propane bottle side that you buy. Yep. So in residential and commercial space for electrification, right? We can certainly do more that's natural. We can do things like wind and solar. We can certainly do more geothermal. We can put more nuclear. Texas, unfortunately, is flat enough. Hydroelectric's probably not a likelihood of building a lot more dams realistically. So we have to look at it and say, okay, does anybody think the state of Texas is going to get smaller? I mean, realistically, right? Even if you want to enact massive border patrol and build this ridiculous wall and have all these arguments about what's happening across the southern border, which, by the way, I've actually been across the southern border when I was in Presidio. I went across the border into Ojinaga. I had lunch with the mayor in Ojinaga and the lunch with the mayor in Presidio. Yeah. There was no queue. There was no refugees. There was no issue at all. I would challenge a lot of people to actually get off their ass, go down to the actual border and actually see it for themselves and see how much of this is all grandstanding by the media. It's all BS. A lot of it is truly not happening, right? Okay. But in the point of the population- Sounds argument, good. <laughs> the, the biggest thing in the in the population discussion is that we have the transportation sector, right? You can, yeah, okay, electrify more cars. Microboat tractor is not going to be any time electrified. Right. I don't, I'm not looking forward to an electric bulldozer or an excavator to do work, right? So there's things I think are going to be long-term to get ever decarbonized. Show me an example, and I say this all the time on the campaign, show me an example of how you're going to replace the entire petrochemical sector. Where are you going to get your paints, your plastics, your pharmaceuticals? 8% of oil used today goes to making plastics. 8 million barrels a day of hydrocarbon yep. goes to making just plastic products. Yeah. There is no replacement for that. No. So a century from now, we're still drilling wells in Texas to produce oil right. to manage the petrochemical business that is still part of this industry that is not going away. <laughs> so for all the anti, I tell Democrats all the time, all of the narrative arguments that it's anti-fossil fuel is equally as wrong as the arguments that say it's it's the Democrats are anti-fossil fuel, right? right? You got to look at both sides. The answer is in the middle that we have to do more on some sides and we have to be realistic about others. If we want to make the trade-off for smog emissions and other issues with coal, great. Let's use natural gas. We have plentiful resources. We have capacity. It's a yeah. load. Yeah. We can use it in the meantime. And I say to folks... If the state of Texas model is correct, that by the year 2100, 77 years from now, there's 96 million Texans living here. We're 30 million now, 66 million more people here. We generate, let's call it 90 gigawatts an hour of power load at maximum capacity. It's a light, slightly less than that, but let's just round off to make the numbers easier. Yeah. To double our population with 66 million more people, we need 270 gigawatts by the turn of the century. Right. Where Where's the plan to currently develop 270 gigawatts? Anybody have an idea? I've well, never seen anything. Yeah, well, that's, that's so different than the argument about how they say we're going to electrify the entire grid. And it's like, that's going to take 100 years if we started today. So, you know, obviously it's a it's a deal, you know, and it's a it's a case. Um, you know, I want to touch on real quick the methane with the federal dollars. Let, let's talk about that because here we are, you know, we're trying to find ways to capture the methane, these carbon tax, carbon credits, mm -hmm. and we're having to shove this back down hole. You know, I mean, how how, how do you see us uh, one, how do you see the disperse of those federal funds? Um, and then also, you know, how do we help out by not causing these more earthquakes? So, so that's a that's a tough one because uh, first and foremost, we have to break the problem into there's the current 
uh, unconventional resource production side. So when we talk about the Delaware, we talk about the Midland Basin, a lot of our production that's occurring and the methane and the flaring that's occurring is from the new resource development, okay. not the previous historic resource development, right? So the methane emission, when you drive by the vast majority of older wells pre-2010, let's say, yeah. and you buy, drive by their stock tanks and you will see their pressure relief valves, if you took a FLIR camera or you took an infrared camera, you would actually see the methane venting off the top of those tanks. This is not the same problem as when we're talking about flaring from the, let's say, three and a half million barrels of oil production that's coming from the Delaware. Right. So we have to break this problem into what is what we're really attacking, right? So yep. everybody is attacking the new well problem, the new phenomena of the unconventional resource, saying we're flaring and wasting all this resource. But the problem is, how are you ever going to address the older stuff? Right. Those are the operators who are smaller, who don't have the resources. At one time in the state of Texas, we actually had a gas gathering facility, right? right. And that was all abandoned by the industry. It was all got rid of. The reality was that if we had left that system in place, that gas would have been being captured all these years. Now, do we need to reestablish a gas gathering facilities and infrastructure to be able to manage all these small operators and scenarios? Well, you know, that's one of those questions. I, I would also argue that, you know, I've worked in Alaska. So in Prudhoe Bay, for example, the oh, yeah. natural gas on Prudhoe Bay cannot be produced because there is no way to put it down the Alaska pipeline from Prudhoe, you know, Prince William Sound all the way up to Prudhoe Bay. Well, Prudhoe Bay, Prince William Sound. So the reality is that it all had to be re-injected. Now, what's wrong with that argument? Nothing. Because again, that's a, that's a resource we can use for a later future day. Why are we not doing that in Texas? We have older resources and older wells that have been drilled and, 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 and well in decline. Why are we not re-injecting that gas back for a later date instead of wasting and flaring it? Oh, that's right, because the Royal Commission has nobody technical that understands anything about literally anything in the business. We have an agency who has literally been captive to its, you know, basically allowed to self-regulate the industry without anybody saying conservationism has any merit. I, and look, I'm a conservationist. Conservationism, by definition, means you believe in environmental stewardship and it's balanced with man's need for economic, you know, and, and uh, energy development. Right. And these two should be in relative moderation. Right now, we're sitting in a scenario where development is greater than our environmental stewardship. That's wrong. Now, is there certain places like Yellowstone? I don't want to see us drilling geothermal wells. Yes, there's oh. some places I yes. would say yes. environmentally probably should have slightly higher focus. Right? right. But I think the conversation is out of whack. And this is the part of the problem we've had with the Texas Rural Commission. It's been an agency that has been run by Republican control for more than 50 years. I'm back 50 years, and at this point, I'm not willing to go to the library and dig through microfiche and old newspapers to figure out who was the last Democrat. So I challenge anybody out there, if you can figure out who was the last Democrat on the Texas Rural Commission, I'll give you a big reward and a gold star for it, because I'm not doing the work anymore on that one. Yeah. But again, this administration kind of concept, it's like we're, we're out of whack in terms of our entire priorities for what we need to do to let the industry. The industry has been allowed to self-regulate, and this is why today we're sitting in the problems we have, is because the industry has been allowed to self-regulate. I tell people on the campaign side, go drive down the highway, go down here on I-35, do 120 miles an hour, and then go call your local sheriff and turn yourself in. And let me know, first of all, what the sheriff says when you do it, and then second of all, tell me how well that worked for you. Because you're not calling. That's the same way the current, the Texas Rural Commission currently manages the oil and gas industry. Self-regulation doesn't help anybody. It, and, and even Lord Brown at BP used to say, self-regulation hurts the industry. It takes away from the reputation. And it has major impact to the entire industry. And at the end of the day, everybody pays for the fact that self-regulation will allow people to escort the law instead of everybody saying, hey, it's, well, it's only, it, our companies are good. It's only those guys down there that don't follow the law. But eventually everybody skirts the law. Sure.
I have a question. Um, women, if they wanted to get involved um, during gas, I've heard there's funds for them. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Absolutely. So one of the things in particular about the Texas Oil Commission, and especially in terms of the oil and gas industry, I started my career in 2000, just at the time when the old guys from the pre-cycle, right, the, the, the 1980, pre-1986 hire, I shouldn't call them the old guys, because I'm part of the old guys now. I can tell them I'm old because I use Facebook. Oh, my God, right? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, that hurts. So what I saw was that I saw the initial challenge of when we first brought women into the oil field, the very first days of the company men complaining about, hey, I had to give up the senior staff room, and right, and all the challenges. We have a problem in the industry still of prejudice and racism and sexism and gender equality. And the reality of it is, is that under the Equal Opportunity Workforce, our Railroad Commission has done nothing to have a conversation about labor. Show me the last time somebody at the Texas Railroad Commission has addressed labor. They haven't. And again, it's a state agency. How many women are hired as inspectors versus how many men are currently? There's only 186 inspectors. Is, is it really a 50-50 hiring as a state agency? No, of course not, right? And we have to look at the idea of how do we bring in more representation from also opportunities in, let's say, under, uh, you know, marginalized communities, right? There are a lot of folks who would love to work in the energy, energy industry, and realistically, we don't never, we never give them the opportunity to even recruit them or even get them in. Okay. Right. And that's one of the things as a Texas Railroad Commissioner I want to be very specific about is that the idea of equal opportunity in the employment scenario has to be addressed. Right. There are people like, look, we, you know, if you've ever worked in the oil and gas industry, you know, the old joke was you could be a convict and you could work for Franks the next day on a casing crew. Right. And Franks, Franks hired. And again, that, right. no issue. Right. If you didn't, you didn't matter your past history to work in oil and gas. Right. And, and I'm no judgment. Right. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity for everybody to work in the business. I would like to see the opportunity for that conversation to be beyond just necessarily people who look just like me. I think it's one of those things that we're really missing in terms of the diversity and equity and inclusion. And I know a lot of people hate those key words, just like ESG and social governance, because, oh my God, you sound like a Democrat. But the reality is, you know, if you really look at the oil and gas industry, what's wrong with that? Yeah. When you really challenge the core issue of what happens in oil and gas, it's really about prejudice, it's really about bias, and it's really about racism. We have a lot of issues, and again, Look, I've been in the business 23 years. I'm I'm not saying anything new. There's no, nobody out there who's going to say to me, wow, I've never heard that said before, right? <laughs> yeah. You've never been on the rig floor long enough then, yeah. right? So we need to address these real core issues at the cultural values of what this business is about. Because look, I, I tell folks all the time, the Railroad Commission race is really not a partisan race. Whether I'm running as a Democrat or Green Party or Libertarian didn't matter because at the end of the day, energy is about everybody. It's about the opportunity to supply power and clean water and make sure we protect the environment for every single Texan. Yeah. Where does it say that it has to be Democrat or Republican? It doesn't. So, so again, this is the problem we're having with this whole partisan argument about a lot of our politics. Yeah. Social issues. Yes. I, there's, there's certainly a lot to be said about yeah. partisanism, right? But in the energy conversation, this is a nonpartisan discussion. You know, if I may, I want to, that's a great question, uh, uh, Christy, because you know, not only, you know, is the representation not there, but what about with like all these state funds and federal funds for plugging wells um, or, you know, doing the carbon? You know, is, is there is access for uh, women-owned businesses and minority-owned businesses to get part of those state and uh, federal funds? I would certainly I would certainly hope there is because, uh, again, that would be the idea of equal representation and opportunity. Right. But let's be realistic. Show me where the Railroad Commission has its transparency and where that money has been spent. 
So this is one of the problems with the agency. There's a lot of challenges, and I'd like to see some real invoice cost tracking and some real honest public disclosure as to where the money went. Where did the money really get spent? Where did the money actually go to plug some of these wells? Who, who, What contractors were actually chosen? Were they actually part of a state-preferred contractor vendors list, or was it because the district manager decided he wanted to call somebody out? Now, there is a list of preferred contractors for the Zorfer wells, right? I mean, I, uh, there is one. I don't know. You show me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, there is one, but I, I do want to, uh, what was the other thing? Oh, transparency is, is really big. I, I, I get that. So who do you say um, would want to basically big brother the Railroad Commission? You know, I know a letter was written by a couple of people, uh, Joaquin Castro. I mean, who who do you want to come in and, or, and you know, how do we, how do we, you know, have somebody? Well, first, check, you know? well, first and foremost, it has to start by electing somebody that truly uncovers the skeletons in the closet. Right. That's first and foremost. The way the current administration um, currently functions, that's not going to change. All right. So let's get let's get realistic about we have to start to work on it internally, start to address some of the issues. Second, we have to look at the idea of much to your point that are the vendor lists correct or are we really, truly giving opportunities equally? Are we really showing where the money is spent correctly? Transparency is probably the number one issue in the agency by the current way it's operated and have been allowed to operate. Uh, and again, this is not benefiting any single Texan at all. Mm-hmm. And I would challenge anybody to say that our current modus operandi is beneficial to anybody, but certain individuals and people who have made campaign, campaign contributions. Yeah. Well, Bill, I, I cannot thank you enough for coming on it. Uh, you know, I'll say, like I told you before, I have a feeling it's going to come down to you and uh, the incumbent right now come November. Um, I think it's really cool that you're the fourth on the ballot. I mean, that's that's pretty neat. I mean, you've got, you know, like you said, we've got we don't have governor. I think this no, back, but we twenty twenty president, and then the two senators, and then boom, that that you well, got the one senator. The one so senator. yeah, so right now in the twenty twenty four, obviously president, three federal races. So it'll be president, then it'll be the U.S. senator, the Ted Cruz race, yes, and then whoever the Democrats realistically gets the the opportunity, yeah. and then your local thirty eight congressional districts are all up because they're every two years. And then it's the only executive position in 2024 is the Railroad Commission. And that shows how important it is. Uh, it's an incredibly important yeah, position. So important. Yeah. Yes. You know, besides it being the worst named agency in the state of Texas. Oh, come on. Right? It's, come it's on. Fun. No, no. No, it's, it's fun to explain to everybody. No, it's not about you. I Rail crossing. I, I love it. I mean, I was like, it's the Railroad Commission. What? Like, yeah, no, it, it's almost like just, it is not Texas. If, you, if something they'll make, you know, it's like, you know. Well, it is the oldest agency in the state of Texas. Yes. 1891, founded by Mr. Hogg. And that is part of the reason for the preservation, because it's the fourth oldest agency in the United States, right? And and again, historically, from the railroad side, <clears throat> when we transported oil in barrels, they went on the rail, right? And it made sense. Right. But in 2005, when all of the TxDOT responsibilities were taken to handle the rail system, it doesn't make sense that the agency has never changed it. Now, let me throw one, one other thing out. Wind and solar is not covered by any agency in the state of Texas. Now, this is a very interesting conversation because we had our first abandoned windmill farm in Oklahoma in 2021, where there is, again, from a landowner perspective, uh, agreement to be able to have a surface rice use case mm-hmm. and a way to have it arbitrated yeah. in case of somebody defaults or walks away from their bonding requirements. We don't have any protection for landowners. The Railroad Commission's fundamental responsibility is to be the arbitrator. Well, first of all, protect the landowner from is uh, unscrupulous actors, right? hold the oil and gas industry accountable for executing as per requirements of legal legal requirements, monitoring, managing safety, right, and providing to make sure that people have opportunities to have healthy environments. 
But then it's also it also has its judicial side of the Rare Commission, right, which has its own legal process of managing settlements between mineral rights discrepancies or landowner discrepancies or oil company discrepancies with the agency. Right. So one of the things that's really interesting about this is that there's nobody that covers wind and solar. So there actually should be a the Nate with the name change, and this is what Ryan Sitton actually proposed before he got shot down by Mrs. Craddock, uh, was that it should be called the Natural Energy Resources Commission of Texas, because really it manages the natural energy resources of the state of Texas, including uranium and coal mining. We have lignite coal mines, mostly in sunset phase, right? We don't actively mine coal in the state of Texas anymore. But there are still some mining operations, and most of them are in sunset, and uranium are in closure as well. Uh, but again, that's the agency that's responsibility is to manage it, how we generate our energy supply side yeah. and safely deliver it to market. Yeah. That's the purpose of what it should be. So the name agency actually would make sense to call it the Natural Energy Resources Commission. And I would actually even throw in there as well, it should also be the moderator for the battery install sites. Because again, it's a landowner agreement. It's eventually a use case and a return and decommissioning yeah. down the road someday when these sites have to be reclaimed. That again, the Railroad Commission should be the agency enforcing the surface agreements for decommissioning long term. Well, Bill, again, I cannot thank you enough uh, for sharing all the info today with us that you have and putting putting a light on some issues as well. I mean, you know, that that to me is, is what's so important about my show, The Crude Truth. As you know, as we talked about in the post, it's like, hey, what do you want to talk about? Let's highlight what do you want to highlight? Uh, for those out there that that are looking to, to get behind you, you know, how can they reach out to you? And, you know, please look out there, you know, to that camera. And, and, and you know, why should they vote for you come uh, March 4th and then in November? Absolutely. Uh, I'm Bill Birch, a 2024 Democratic candidate for the Texas Rural Commission. I'm a 23-year experienced oil and gas professional with the technical knowledge and the operational understanding of how to really regulate and manage the oil and gas industry in the state of Texas. You can find more information about my positions at Birch4, the number 4, trrc.com. And also on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and uh, I think YouTube because I forget. I'm on all the social media sites. I'm even on, I'm even on I'm not I'm not that old that I still actually do use uh, TikTok. So wow. Uh, so there you go. So you can find all information. And again, I'm I'm not, I don't unfortunately have the big uh, governor's tour bus sitting down front. So uh, you know you I actually do most of my stuff on my own, and uh, you can reach me directly on any one of those DM channels. And uh, send me an email at uh, bill at birch.com, B-U-R-C-H.com. So straightforward. And uh, this is what it is. Like, I'm transparent. I'm an engineer. I'm not a politician. And uh, I'm truly in this not for the financial resources. God damn knows I'm not in for the money. <laughs> because if I want to say that to honest folks, I would have stayed working in the business. This is truly about leaving a better legacy for the state of Texas. A lot of people don't believe that somebody would actually volunteer and dedicate, dedicate their time. I've had 23 years of great experiences in this industry. I'm pissed off with what I see in West Texas. I'm disappointed in the Railroad Commission. I'm extremely upset about our groundwater scenarios. And this is not the legacy I want for my grandkids and great-grandkids that live in this great state. So, you know what? Time to have some change. I, I get the fact folks are dismantled by the D by my name. Get past your prejudice, folks. This is about saving the industry. This is about changing the way the state needs to operate. It's about keeping this industry alive in the state of, the state of Texas successfully by managing our produced water problem and growing our grid to be able to stop having these ridiculous ERCOT warnings every single time the temperature is above 100 or below 40 degrees. That's the future we need to design. And again, we don't have politicians to know what the hell they're talking about in energy. You know that, I know that, everybody knows that, right? <laughs> That's not who we elect, right? But the problem with it is, is that we are at a point now 
to solve these problems, we need people with technical capacity to actually deliver the job. Otherwise, we're screwed. Well, there you go. <laughs> so I, it's sad. It's always, it's all, I hate to leave on such a bad note, no, but you no. know, <clears throat> the opportunity. That's true. That's true. Right? There you go. That is. And unfortunately, I think that the real future where we're standing in this is that we have an opportunity to truly change the state of Texas. And one of the things in particular that I, I try to tell folks is that I have this longer term vision of what I call my Vision 2100. And the Vision 2100 plan is really about how we're going to solve the water production problems, turning it into fresh water through recycling technologies and being able to have adequate access to fresh water throughout West Texas. And that is a game changer. Having the ability to no longer worry about water in Austin and San Antonio as that city and that whole megaplex becomes, God help us, one I-35 becomes one single corridor, a parking yep. lot like I-45 in Houston. But the reality of the way that Texas is growing and the way we're using our groundwater, the number one thing we have to stop doing is looking at as a waste product in the oil and gas industry and use it now as a resource for our future. So. Yep. That's the exciting part. That's the future I want to see in Texas. And uh, we'll deal with the legacy issues, and we're going to continue to deal with them. Yeah. And, but we got to design the future. Oh, man. Well, Bill, again, thank you. Thank you so much. Christy, thank you as always. And uh, yeah. <laughs> what'd you think? I thought it was amazing. Very knowledgeable. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. And we'll see you all again here on another episode of The Crude Truth. Again, thank you to our sponsors, LFS Chemistry, NAPE Expo, Air Compressor Solutions, Exec Crew, Oil and Gas Workers Association, Pecos Country Operating. The easiest way to start your own podcast and TV show? Real News Communications Network. Stand out from your competition. Produce streams of high-quality social media content. Become a thought leader in your industry. With RNCN, you get to be the host. We handle everything else. Tour one of our three locations in Dallas, Fort Worth, and the Colony. Call 972-402-6333 or visit launchashow.com to find out more.